Greetings and salutations. You're listening to This Ends at Prom, a podcast where I, teen movie apologist BJ Colangelo, show my wife, Harmony Colangelo, a seminal teen girl movie that I missed out on because I grew up as a teen boy. Is today's movie truly emblematic of womanhood? Or of rose-colored nostalgia glasses What your perspective? Circle yes, no, or maybe to find out if we're crowning a queen? Or if we're killing the teen dream. Welcome to This Ends at Prom. This Ends at Prom is a Pod People production. I don't wanna be your merch girl. I wanna be your goddamn idol. And I don't wanna have to work twice as hard for the same motherfucking title. But I. Welcome back, prom party. We're a waste of time. We're a waste of time. Don't listen. We're a waste of time. Don't talk to me. I don't remember the words exactly. <laughs> hey, you did pretty good. I'm pretty impressed with that. Thank you. And the best part is your delivery, that's about right. <laughs> yeah, I, you really need the apathy that comes with being a 15-year-old girl being subjected to the, the shittiest headlining act imaginable. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So, friends, we are covering one of my all-time favorite movies this week. And this is one that normally would probably get reserved for, like, our teen movie hell. But just something about the state of the world, it just felt right to cover a movie about teenage girls just giving the middle finger to everyone and everything and doing what they want because that's just who they are. Also, it's a 40-year anniversary of this movie. It is a 40-year anniversary. Happy anniversary. Yeah, didn't really plan that out until I was looking at it going, oh, wait. (laughs) Hey, I know how to do math. How serendipitous. (laughs) (laughs) So, yes, we are talking about, ladies and gentlemen, the fabulous stains. I'm really excited for us to be doing this one, especially because we're dealing with, like, some punk rock recording this week. Yeah, we are doing a little bit of a punk rock recording this week because you are hearing us recording remotely from the beautiful home of Mr. Michael Kennedy. So if you listen to our episode on Stick It, it's a similar circumstance. We are puppy-sitting Lady Scooby Strode. So if you hear a little... Be- the beautiful sounds of little pitter-patters against the floor, yes, it's Scooby just, you know... Being our third co-host this week. The the tippy tappings of puppy claws on wood floors. Yes. It's the cutest thing in the world. Yeah. So she's here. (laughs) Yeah. And then we might have background noise that we'll just have. Yeah. And also we're dealing with a more echoey room than our well-cushioned clutter core home. Yes. That absorbs all of our nonsense. (laughs) So it's going to be interesting. We're going lo-fi this week. Oh, yeah. Ooh, I like that. Exactly. What a good angle. (laughs) Yeah, see? It's it's not a bug. It's a feature. (laughs) So... So before we really dive into it, Harmony, what was your introduction to this movie? Um, I saw people posting about it on Twitter a lot. Okay. Also, you have a fabulous Stains tank top that you're currently wearing. Let the record state, this was not intentional. I just grabbed tank tops because I was like, oh, I'm going to be in a new place and puppy sitting. I want to be comfortable. Mm-hmm. And this is the most comfortable tank top that I own. And it just happens to be my fabulous Stains tank top. Yeah. So yeah, that, that I, I knew of it because of that. Mm-hmm. Also, people just gushing about how much they love Laura Dern on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And this movie would get brought up. Also, it's a very, very well-regarded punk movie for people mm-hmm. in the know. This one also has one moment in particular that gets memed quite frequently, which is very young Diane Lane smoking a cigarette. And the guy's like, you know, for every cigarette, you take a day off your life. And then her eyes get really big and she grabs another cigarette and she puts it in like her mouth. She grabs like six cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> but she puts the two in her mouth. Yeah. But it's it's real funny. And, and that ended up on Tumblr for a bit. And then it got gift and made mm-hmm. its way over to Twitter. So you, you see it every once in a while. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this movie is incredible. It is one of my favorites. It's a precursor to Riot Girl music, which is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, it you know predates it by almost a decade, yeah. which is wild to me. Um, and it features Diane Lane and Laura Dern in two of their earliest roles. Surprisingly, not their first roles. But uh, this movie also sat on a shelf for a couple years, so people may not believe it, uh, especially given like how 
tall and commanding they both are, but Diane Lane is 15 in this movie, uh-huh. and Laura Dern is 13. She turned 13 during the shooting, so she's 12 for some of these scenes. That's fucking wild. Which is crazy pants to so, me. These girls are kind of uh, showing a lot of skin for being like 15 or mm-hmm. 13. They're smoking cigarettes. They're having sex with weird punk boys. Like, this is that like hangover of like edgy, radical 70s culture mm-hmm. where it's like, this is like that same vibe, but like so much less scummy, which is weird for a punk movie. Well, what's really interesting is that this movie, because it sat on a shelf for a couple years, was in production before Reagan became president. <sighs> so this is that like teeny tiny window where everything is like, we're still really pissed off because of Vietnam. We haven't quite gotten into the, the pendulum. because of Reagan yet? Yeah, we haven't gotten <laughs> into like that pendulum swing of where like conservatism is making like a big comeback. So it's that little sweet spot where it's like, no, we, we can still be really punk and we can really be boundary pushing and we don't have anyone telling us that we can't do it, mm-hmm. which is really, really exciting. And this is a movie directed by Lou Adler. And for those who don't recognize the name, um, people may know him as behind producing most of Cheech and Chong movies. He's also one of the producers of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. So, like, dude is an edgy guy. Mm-hmm. Um, but then at the same time, he was also a very famous music producer. And one of his big things was the Mamas and the Papas and oh. Mama Cass. And- <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, that counterculture group, the Mamas and the Papas. <laughs> right, right, right. So, you know, that's something, you know, to to keep in mind that's kind of the world we're playing with here um this is we couldn't find an official budget on it but we are pretty sure this is the lowest budget movie that lou adler was ever a part of i mean i would be shocked if this was like five hundred thousand. yeah i would be too honestly this, this like i was trying to find comparable films to compare it to and a lot of those i could not like i could not find the budget for like slade in flame but i would imagine <laughs> it's something similar to this but they were actually like a pop band that was very successful Mm -hmm. but i'm like i don't know like just what i managed to find it's like that's probably what we're talking with here yeah and like that that's punk as fuck and it's great and i love it agreed so before we dive into the synopsis of the film it's time for welcome to the morning announcements as a reminder you can support the show on patreon patreon.com backslash this ends at prom over at our patreon we offer things like our schedule ahead of time wonderful playlists curated by harmony our sadie hawkins dance episodes focusing on teen boy movies and we are currently going through our tv homecoming series through pen 15 we offer a free bonus episode every month for our subscribers at only one dollar If now is not the right time to support financially, we totally understand. All we ask is that if you love the show, you send us to a friend, you give us a five-star review wherever it is you get your podcasts, and you tag us on social media, hashtag thisendsatprom or at thisendsatprom. This month, we want to spotlight something that we think you will find very, very interesting. The Cosmic Game. The Cosmic Game is an original horror-fantasy audio drama from the immersive production company Drunken Devil located in Los Angeles. A modern twist on classic radio dramas, the podcast tells the story of God and the devil as they try to outwit one another in an effort to gain influence over all Earth-dwelling mortals. Listeners will encounter vampires in New Orleans, ancient Roman tyrants, cults, and demons in this supernatural melodrama. The Cosmic Game incorporates at-home cocktail recipes curated to match each episode for an unparalleled listening experience. The first three episodes are available now wherever you get your podcasts, with new episodes releasing weekly. For more information, check out thedrunkendevil.com. T-H-E, drunkendevil.com. So Fandango was useless to me this week, so we are going over to IMDb for our synopsis. Corinne Burns retreats far into plans for her band, The Fabulous Stains, after her mother's death. So far that she gets them, she and two cousins, on a tour with a washed-out glam rock group and a rising British punk band, radically changes her appearance, attracts a cult following and national media attention. With luck like this, what could go wrong? 
okay, so that's actually a pretty good synopsis. But cousins? Yeah, no. Laura Dern is the cousin. It is Corinne Burns, played by Diane Lane, and her sister Tracy Burns, played by Marin Cantor. Mm-hmm. So when we first meet Corinne, she is being interviewed. There, there's a lot of interview segments that are kind of scattered throughout this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's being interviewed because her mother has passed away. She is being sent to Virginia to live with her cousin, uh, Laura Dern, and her mom. And they kind of are like, yeah, you know what? This sucks. Like, we don't like living here. We don't like being here. Everything mm-hmm. about this existence is not for us. We want to be rock and rollers. We want to do stuff. So they do it. They mm-hmm. just kind of say fuck off to their family and they pursue their dreams. Yeah. Uh, something that I do love so much about this movie, which this was my second time watching it, and it's still really good the second time around. And I noticed like way more. So it's like it, this movie holds up on repeated viewing super duper well. But one thing that I love about watching this movie is I've spent a lot of time in like Southern Ohio and like Appalachia sort of America, like Southern Pennsylvania, West Virginia. And it really is one of the most depressing parts of this country. So why would these girls want to stay there? Like no offense Mm -hmm. to anyone who lives there, but like all my friends who have moved out of that part of the country are like, yeah, no, it fucking sucks. Yeah, the way that I view a lot of places like that, and even, like, I recently had to make a trip to go back to my hometown, is that, like, you have sort of, like, a little brother feeling about it, of, like, I can say that this sucks. I can criticize this because I've lived it, but no one else can dare do it. Like, mm -mm. Oh, that's me about with the mistake on the lake. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so I think that's, that's you know, something to keep in mind whenever we're talking about kind of these these areas that the government and the world have sort of forgotten about. Well, there, there are still plenty of people there that are doing their best to try to make it work. But for somebody like Corinne and her sister and her cousin, like, that, they're not going to thrive there and they don't want to be there. No, it's um, – so I've driven through a lot of sections of that country um, numerous times. And, like, the best visual I can think – for, like, the the insurmountable difficulty of getting out is when you're driving along, like, the side of a mountain through that part of America, and you see, like, a dell, not like the singer, like, a dell, mm-hmm. um, where there's maybe, like, six trailers and one giant satellite dish at the bottom, mm-hmm. and, like, you're at, like, the bottom of a pit. Mm-hmm. Like, that's just to me is thinking like, wow, it truly is so difficult to physically get out of the pit that you are in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, that that's the feeling of being stuck in physical form. Yes. Like, the physical representation of being trapped somewhere is that visual for me. Here you are. You're just sitting around at home wasting time. I wouldn't call it a waste of time. What about love? I'm too far gone for love. Well, so long as you're alive, I mean... You know, I mean, we can sit around here and waste our precious time philosophizing about love and make it sound terrific. But what it boils down to is that we're just a bunch of horny dogs. Do you think your views may change as you grow older? And what's interesting, too, is how Corinne manages to get out and what motivates her to get out is she's she's interviewed um, after the death of her mother. And in a very weird way, her mother's passing ends up being like a very positive catalyst for her. Like, that sounds horrible. Mm -hmm. But because of her mother's passing, she gets interviewed. She mentions her band. She gets nationwide attention because she was kind of belligerent towards the person interviewing her Mm -hmm. um, because she just gives no fucks. And that is what motivated her to go to a local rock show and meet the manager and meet up with Lawn Boy. And he was like, you know what? Yeah, you want to be the opening act for this? What we were pretty sure is supposed to be a stand-in for, like, if Kiss was washed up. Um, Which they were. (laughs) Kiss never washed up, actually, which is fascinating. But, like, this band is so clearly modeled after them. Yeah, I think of this as, like, uh, the sound of, like... A frigid pink or a a vanilla fudge, but with like early 70s glam rock aesthetic. Yeah. What are they? Metal, the metal corpses? Is that their name? The metal corpses is the name of the band. But like, 
What's really fascinating is about a Corinne third degree burns is that she kind of is like an early version of going viral. Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. Her like no nonsense towards her interviewer is the same thing we see like several of these every single year. Like, um, how old are you? Grown. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, she just has no patience for the person that is talking to her, and yeah. I love it. Yeah, that's I, I love Corinne as a character. I think that she's fantastic, and she really does represent this just like I don't have time for this attitude mm-hmm. that I think people may think of as bratty. But when you look at the circumstances of her life, she's she's lost both of her parents. Her mom's been sick for a long time, so she's been sort of been filling in as the parental role for her younger sister. She's 15 and she's tired. She's and fed she's, up. She's fed up and she's allowed to be fed up and she's also got to deal with all of that while at the same time dealing with the fact that she's a teenage girl in America, which is always bullshit, no matter mm. what your circumstances are. Yeah, and I think that's why so many teen girls gravitate towards this band mm-hmm. because they see themselves in the thing she's saying. And also, like, they see themselves in that they are also probably 15 years old. Yeah, absolutely. You're like, ah, yes, one of us. You can do it. I can do it. We are an army of skunks. Absolutely. So there's an article from The Guardian written by Jenny Valentish about this movie, and it's kind of about how great it is. And there's some really good comparisons that she makes that I want to bring up throughout the course of the episode. So the article opens by saying, when Johnny Rotten crouched on the edge of the stage in San Francisco in 1978 at the demise of the Sex Pistols U.S. tour and asked, ever get the feeling you've been cheated? It would inspire a key moment in film four years later. In Ladies and Gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains, Billy, who fronts the Looters, a London punk band, all poxy this and bollocks that, rounded out by real-life Sex Pistols Paul Cook and Steve Jones, as well as Paul Simonon from The Clash, Billy addresses the fanatical teenage girl audience awaiting the set of the headline act, The Fabulous Danes, and snarls, you've been ripped off. Rotten's comment had been in reference to manager Malcolm McLaren booking the disastrous tour in cities unlikely to embrace the pistols, whereas Billy's broadside is motivated by resentment that his booking agent has turned what would have been the looter's support band, The Fabulous Danes, into a cynical marketing concept. Your adverts, your commercial, he spits at the audience of skunks, named after the two-tone hair of the fabulous stains. The sea of teenage girls is dressed in the official stains merch of transparent red blouses, completed by red-winged eye makeup and underwear and fishnets with no skirts. I love all of that, and I love that this specifically brings up the Sex Pistols, because Mm -hmm. the Sex Pistols, for good or bad, are the archetype of what punk is yeah when like in much the way when you think of what's a professional wrestler you think of some amalgamation of randy savage or hulk hogan right even though it's been 40 years since their heyday basically Mm -hmm. in much the same way what's the archetype of punk you don't think of the ramones leather jackets you don't think of the clash and like their political messaging you think of snotty shitty sex pistols yeah you think of sid vicious and plaid pants and safety pins safety pins spiked hair yeah like the statement of punk fashion which like we're not going to do too much of like a historical look back to this because we actually did um the last unicorn not too long ago Mm -hmm. and it's the same year so there's like teen sexploitation films and also like sword and sorcery is really popular none of which applies here Mm -hmm. so there's not a lot of contemporaries to kind of focus on from this time frame but like thinking about like okay this was recorded in 1980 the sex pistols are dead yeah in fact, they're releasing the great rock and roll swindle, which is pointing out how the Sex Pistols were bullshit. And they're mm-hmm. basically just ace of base, including the love for swastikas. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is so fascinating to have a band that features members of the Six Pistols saying like, you've been had. This is a scam. These girls aren't what you think they are. Right. When it's like, bro, I don't I don't know if you know this kettle over here. Like, But dude, uh, pot, maybe you should meet it. Like, for real, though. Oh, my. It's it's so fascinating, and I love it so much. Um, 
I don't really like the Sex Pistols. I love the mythos of the Sex Pistols because right. I think it's hilarious more than I actually think that they're good. Yeah, that's the thing. Sex Pistols are kind of the first industry plants and we never talk about them in that way, but we should. Certainly in like the alternative scene, absolutely they are. <laughs> yeah. Um, like you had people like um, Jordan Mooney and a lot of other people being born out of the same subsection of British culture that created what we know of as like the punk aesthetic. Mm-hmm. But punk was a fashion scene that was then turned into like, hey, here's our band that is going to push this scene forward. Yeah. And it was only punk for maybe like six months, and Uh then it became commercial punk, and it became a hot mess. But I do want to point out a few movies while we're on this little pit stop of like rock and roll movies or punk rock movies that I think are somewhat comparable, and yet still nothing like this movie. I truly don't know how this movie got made. I don't either. So... The year before, in 1979, you have Rock and Roll High School. Yes, which so, we have done an episode on, and people can check that out to know all of our very positive feelings about Rock and exactly. Roll High School. Exactly. That's the Ramones, and it is like a beach movie, kind yeah. of like what the Ramones are. Yeah, it's a Roger Corman beach movie set at a high school with PJ Souls and the Ramones. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's not what this. This is bleaker than that. Yes. You have the great Rock and Roll Swindle, which is a mockumentary which is, mm-hmm. it, that's fine. It's not really a film with a plot in the sense, honestly, it, calling that it ha- saying that it has a plot in general is being really fucking generous <laughs> to that movie. Um, you have The de- Decline of Western Civilization. Oh, those are so Very good. bleak, but also not, it, it's, a, it's a documentary, not a plot. Um, then you have a few things that I think are a little bit more in line with this movie. Aesthetically, you have like Liquid Sky. Okay. Plot-wise... You have something like Starstruck. Starstruck is so great, and we will absolutely be doing Starstruck someday. And uh, that's not in reference to, I think, like a t- another movie came out recently called Starstruck. Yeah, it's we're from talking, 1982. Yes, we're it's talking Australian, about the one And it's about a girl who just wants to be, she wants to be in a band. She wants to be successful, but more in like a Cyndi Lauper pop sense, less mm-hmm. than like a, like a punk rock kind of sense. And then you have a movie called Smithereens, which is a drama about a girl doing lurid things to go from New York to Los Angeles in a punk rock vein. And again, that makes total sense to me as like a contemporary to this. But I have so many questions about how this film gets made, though. Like, but why? Who thought that this, like, obviously, artistically, I get why it's made because it's awesome and it's fantastic and there's nothing truly like it. But in terms of commercial... How, how, what did you, what did you, what was the plan for this? What was the end game for this movie? <laughs> so I do have a little bit of backstory on that that I do think is very interesting. Great. So originally the working title of this movie was All Washed Up. And I think it was supposed to originally feature like the washed up band a little bit more than the Fabulous Danes. Yeah. Um, but once it was underway, obviously Lou Adler stepped on for Paramount. The script is written by Nancy Dowd um, and she wrote this under a pseudonym, but Nancy Dowd had just won the Best Screenplay Academy Award for the movie Coming Home. Okay. Uh, the movie's produced by Joe Roth. He later became a chairman at Walt Disney, which is wild. Um, but basically what had happened is that in the mid-1970s, Caroline Kuhn was working as a melody maker music journalist and had earned a reputation as kind of an early proponent of punk rock. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Nancy Dowd, who was interested in writing a script about this new movement, contacted her and then they went and she went and visited her out in London. And then Kuhn told Dowd that feminism is the next big thing to come in punk rock. And that is where the, the script to this came from. is basically like a punk music scholar essentially was like, yeah, no, women are the next step. Uh So that's why they got in before Riot Girl became a thing, because this movie is kind of the precursor to all of it. And Caroline Kuhn was correct. Like, women were the next wave of punk rock. Like, that's true. It's fucking wild. Which is so weird, right? Like, it just shows how slow culture actually moves. They maybe weren't the next wave. They were a couple waves away, because, like, as far as, like, bona fide punk, we had to deal with the super bro-y hardcore of the 80s and stuff like that. Okay, yeah, But once we got to the 90s, there we go. (laughs) I think, like, the bro-y wave was already, like, starting to, like, happen. Probably. Yeah, so I just think that that's really interesting to show, like, this is how slow culture is, mm-hmm. is back in, you know, the, the 70s, this woman was like, yeah, no, women are going to be the future of punk. Like, that's what's going to happen. And then it took Riot Girl. Yeah. And here's the thing, though, is maybe it would have happened sooner if something really big hadn't happened in 1981 called MTV. Mm-hmm. And now you had 
a streamlined way of shoving popular music into the eyes and ears of the youth of America. And it's also important to note that Fabulous Stains, you know, kind of sat around for two years and part of why it ended up finally getting put out and it had a very limited theatrical run. This was kind of a hard to find movie for a while, Mm -hmm. but the final scene in this movie is the Fabulous Stains after like doing jail time, uh, ending up on MTV and having like this massively popular music video. MTV wasn't a thing when this movie was started. So then when we do get them at the end, they're a little bit older and, you know, it's 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 an MTV music video and mm-hmm. their look is completely different. Their, their sound, sound is, is completely different. And it's weird because the ending is supposed to feel like this championing of like, yeah, they did it. They're the biggest band in the world. But then at the same time, you're like, but at what cost? And a like, that's bit. really interesting. A I think that's bit. fascinating. I, but true though, it's, I'd be lying if I said I don't prefer the more um, lo-fi production that they have for their songs. And, like, don't get me wrong, I really love this, like, very polished version that they ended up putting out. Um, huge fan of something com- comparable to that, like, Holly and the Italians. But, yeah, it really is almost, like, a bleak ending, In even though it's, like, way more colorful and upbeat. Mm-hmm. And Laura Dern has magnificent hair. Oh, my God. Lorders her so good. <laughs> so good in that ending scene. Um, so this article in The Guardian and the way that they kind of describe the movie and the characters, I think, is is really accurate. So they say, the fabulous Danes themselves are made up of nihilistic firecracker Corinne Burns, a 15-year-old Diane Lane, Jessica McNeil, 13-year-old Laura Dern, and Tracy Burns, Marion Cantor, are pitched somewhere between the Go-Go's and the Runaways. And frontwoman Corinne is frequently invited onto TV shows thanks to her bleak one-liners that are guaranteed to shock suburbia. One moralistic TV news anchor is clearly modeled on Bill Grundy, whose 1976 interview with the Pistols descended into mayhem when he contemptuously goaded them into swearing. (laughs) Which I think is really interesting. Like Like, this movie clearly has such a love-hate relationship with the industry, which is why I think someone like Lou Adler is kind of perfect to make a movie like this. Yeah. Because he really understands the intricacies and kind of the corruptions that exist within it. Yeah. And then can, you know, exploit that on screen. <laughs> there is some degree to which you have to play the game. Mm-hmm. Like, and that that's sort of the bittersweetness of the ending, which, like, we should probably talk about the actual movie and not just the ending at some right, point. Right, right. But, like, before we move on from that... um. It's kind of the bleakness of the ending where it's like, cool, you have to play the game. You have to now be a little more commercial. You have to polish your sound. But you are still getting the same lyrics and the same message out to a wider audience now. Yeah. So it's a mixed bag. Yeah. It's 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 like the industry that produced this thing where like you had a pedigree of a lot of people with a lot of talent and a lot of connections mm-hmm. who believed in punk rock, but also they're still part of the machine. Yes. So it's it's really fucking fascinating. Yeah. So when the Stains do start going on tour and they're the opening for the Metal Corpses and just the Metal Corpses are clearly just a washed up band inspired by Kiss Mm -hmm. um, doing these local shows, people don't know what to make of them um, because obviously when you look at a band comprised of three women, Mm -hmm. you probably assume that it's going to be very melodic. There's going to be a lot of harmonies and there's not. Nope. (laughs) Uh, They are literally learning how to play their instruments Mm -hmm. as they're touring. Mm -hmm. And like they add harmonies later, but like it is bare bones in the beginning. Yeah. To to put it lightly. They they get popular based on their attitude, not on their music. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the big things that happens is early on the tour, one of the band members has a heroin overdose in a bathroom. Mm-hmm. And it's very jarring because obviously these are children. Like Laura Dern is a, a junior high aged girl. Mm-hmm. Diane Lane can't drive yet. She's would be the equivalent of like a freshman in high school. Mm-hmm. And they're seeing a dead body. And like that's intense and tough and hard to deal with. And they all react very differently. Like Laura Dern, not thrilled, like very upset about it. Wants uh, to go home. Wants to go home. They, Tracy. They both want to go home. Tracy's crying. Corinne is very much like, well, that sure sucks for that guy. Like yep. she's very nihilistic about it. And then when she's being interviewed by the TV station, because they're like, oh, you were on tour. 
And she starts making up this lie that like he was in love with her. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, really? And rather than like press on the, isn't it weird that this grown man was in love with this child? She turns it into like, yeah, he couldn't hang. He couldn't handle it. He was an old man in a young girl's world, which is like such a ballsy thing to say to a TV reporter after uh-huh. a man has just died. Yeah. Um, but she just says it because she truly doesn't give a fuck and she's like oh i'm gonna be on tv in front of a national audience time to play up my shtick because that's how i'm gonna get ahead in life and it's like you know what you figured out how the game works very young and you're already willing to manipulate it for your own gain i kind of can't hate on that oh my god so diane lane as corinne third degree burns the whole point of the stains is that they get by on her attitude and her charisma. Like, she has this cult of personality to her. Oh, yeah. And this is an actual 15-year-old girl selling you on these ideals. Yeah. When she is screaming, like, don't put out, or, like, yelling at this woman in the front row, hoping that, like, oh, hey, yeah, some rock star is going to see you and scoop you up and whisk you away from this town. Fuck you. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, my God. You believe it. Yeah. Yeah, like you the conviction that do. this child has. And what's also so interesting is because we know that the 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 stains and then subsequently their skunks, uh, the, their fan group, they wear sheer red tops with mm-hmm. no bra and no skirt, just fishnet. They're basically wearing sheer bodysuits, and then they scream about like not putting out. And even the reporter was like, "Don't you think that's a little contradictory? Like your titties are out." And she's like, "Yeah, and it doesn't matter. I still don't put out. Like mm-hmm. that's the assumption that you've put on me, and that's the assumption you're making, and that's a whole lot of your problem." And to hear like a fifteen year old say shit like that is like. Especially for, 19, like, this is the, the 1980? Mm-hmm. What? <laughs> also, I think it's really great that the scene before she, like, reveals her outfit and they're on tour, right before that, she's hanging out in a bathroom with, like, a pregnant woman. Mm-hmm. And it, it has this read to it that's like, don't put out, you're going to get knocked up, and then you're going to be, like, my aunt or my mom, and you're going to be stuck, and it's going to be the end of the road. Yeah. Like so much of it is just like the message also of that says like, don't give the men the satisfaction. They're going to ruin your lives. And speaking of men ruining lives, um, this Guardian article poses a question. In fact, one wonders what the famously prickly Nancy Dowd made of the end result of Ladies and Gentlemen, the Fabulous Stains. She and director record executive Lou Adler apparently couldn't agree on the ending. And she walked off set after being groped by a crew member. Her feminist script rubbed up awkwardly against the lingering shots of pubescent breasts bouncing behind transparent blouses. So, like, Nancy Dowd's script very much was intentional in how this was supposed to be a subverting and juxtaposing feminist film. But then you get a director like Lou Adler, who's then like, yeah, and we're going to linger on these teenage boobs. Mm -hmm. And, like, then it becomes this really weird thing where we have this feminist story about these girls kind of learning how to fuck the system essentially and like use it for their own gain. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we are seeing it through the lens of somebody who is part of this machine Mm -hmm. and who is the one who determines who gets to be famous, who gets to be, you know, whatever. And he's still sexualizing them. Like as much as they're screaming, like, don't do this. Like, I can't tell if it is incidentally brilliant that Lou Adler was leering with the camera for this movie because it almost adds an extra level to why the stains are so amazing because we are incapable of seeing things from their perspective and only from this patriarchal world that is forcing us to see them in a way that they view them. Yeah, I mean, this is a fantastic argument of like, what does the male gaze mean? Right, right. But something that I think is so fascinating is that this term gets thrown around all the fucking time about older films, which is, you couldn't make this today. Yeah, yeah. No, this is a movie you truly could not make today. And it almost feels like, why would you? Mm -hmm. Because this is such a unique piece in time that, like, post-1992, like, it almost feels like this specific film isn't, why would you make it? Like, it's, it's, there's no reason for it because this has already happened and this is real life. What makes this film interesting is that it is so wildly ahead of its time while also showing off a whole lot of 
underage breasts and mm-hmm. girls smoking and Diane Lane is naked in the shower with the lead singer of the Looters mm-hmm. and that stuff you truly could not put on screen today. Yeah, no, it absolutely impossible. And obviously for good reason. Yeah, this is I think one of those films that's like a hangover of all that 70s like seediness Mm -hmm. where we did a lot of sexualizing young girls. We we talked about it a bit in Angel with all of the, like, how our cup raneth over in the late 70s and early 80s with teen sex worker films Mm -hmm. because there were many of them. Mm -hmm. And this is right in that sweet spot, you know, Mm -hmm. where that was really popular, but also it's throwing it back at you, Mm -hmm. but isn't. Mm -hmm. And it's this really weird give and take that I find fascinating. I think so too. And obviously we want to look at all of these films with the context of when they were made. It's very, very important. Obviously through a 2022 lens, you hear the line 15 year old naked in a shower and you're like, excuse me, what? We need to call somebody. And Mm -hmm. like, yeah, probably should have then too. Um, But it's just a really interesting look at like what we deemed acceptable at this time. Um, Mm -hmm. This is going to get into kind of weird territory, I guess. But something that comes up all the time is we talk about like all of these rock stars who had affairs with girls that were 14, 15 years old, a lot Mm -hmm. of them in the UK. And as gross and horrific as it is to know all of these things, it was legal. It was legal at mm-hmm. the time in a lot of these places and like that doesn't make it okay a lot um, a lot of shitty things are legal and a lot of awful things aren't illegal correct and it's just really really interesting to like have to do that mental gymnastics when watching a movie like this where i'm like i am so on board for the message that this movie has and is the delivery exactly the way that i would prefer to have it no, but I really hope that a lot of people don't get hung up on those aspects of it and miss the point entirely you don't fool me for a minute. I know all about you. You came here tonight thinking you'd see some cute and wonderful rock star. And you hope maybe he'd take one look at you from up on that stage and he'd fall in love with you just like that. Then your savior could take you out of this dump of a town you live in. You could be different from all the other girls. Bitches on drugs. Suckers! 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 Be yourselves. These guys laugh at you. They've got such big plans for the world, but they don't include us. So what does that make you? Just another girl lining up to die. Here's my question for you. Obviously, this could have been made differently, but this is an extremely low-budget film Mm -hmm. that is designed to be titillating on purpose. Like yes. that's the whole that that that's what whole, Corinne Burns' whole thing is is to be salacious and titillating and give you exactly what you want, but not like you've ever had it before. Yes. Would you want this movie to be any other way? Because w- would that would that feel inauthentic to you? Honestly, yeah, it would. Then suddenly feel inauthentic because then suddenly this character is playing by the rules. And this character cannot play by the rules. Mm -hmm. She has to defy all of them, even the ones that make me feel uncomfortable. And that's kind of the point is we have a movie that is about a bunch of like punk teen girls and punk teen girls are going to do things that make you feel uncomfortable. Do they even call themselves punks? No. No, they're just rebellious teens. They're just the stains. Because at this this point, punk was tired. Like Mm -hmm. the looters are like, I don't know, a, a... a bad cock spars rip off mm-hmm. and they're bland and nobody's into them. Like nobody gives a shit about punk in like the very classic sense at that point. We're mm-hmm. at this, at this point in American music, we're moving on to like new wave mm-hmm. since they're becoming big post punk is becoming bigger. Like MTV is about to just rocket synth bands into like the next stratosphere. Nobody gives a crap about punk as a genre. Yeah. And they are not punk. They are something else altogether Uh and wholly their own thing. Which is so cool. And and that's the ideals of punk, which is the good thing. I don't give a shit about punk in like the, oh, are you really punk? I I truly don't fucking care. I care about the ideals of punk. And that's why I argue that like Tiny Tim is more punk than Johnny Rotten ever was. Absolutely. 100%. (laughs) Yeah. Jim Steinman is more punk than Sid Vicious ever was. Mm -hmm. It's fucking weird. But like, no, it's about doing what you want, regardless if it's a good idea, regardless if people get it or not. Mm -hmm. Like that's the proper mentality of what that movement should be what the ideals of that should be Mm -hmm. and and there's a moment that i think that's really important to call out that i think kind of 
kind of encapsulates exactly what this whole thing is about. So Corinne starts a like pseudo tour relationship with Billy, the Mm -hmm. leader of the looters. Yeah. And at one point um, she says to him, you're so jealous of me because Billy has like kicked down her dressing room door to be like, you don't know anything about the industry because he's a jealous bitch. And that's the the man in this unsuccessful band clearly understands the industry as he repeatedly tries to give her advice. Yeah. She does not listen. to. Yeah. Cause she doesn't care. Like, She doesn't want it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, he kicks down the door and she's like, you're so jealous of me. I'm everything you ever wanted to be. And like trying to dig at her, he's like a cunt. And she goes, exactly. Mm-hmm. And it is like, oh, is it so good? <laughs> it's so much like, fuck Billy. Billy sucks. Like the moral of this movie is like, don't fuck men in shitty bands. Here's the thing. I love that the stains are being successful through their own work and their own hype and building themselves up but also i love that over the course of this tour they go from being like the opener's opener into the headliner through men just failing and shooting themselves in the foot over just and over being again stupid like yeah, men like, just like yeah they keep fucking up they are all hoisted by their own petard like every single one of them yeah and i just think that that is really satisfying because like the stains aren't trying to sabotage the looters. They're just better and more interesting than them. Yeah, agree completely. And there is an article that was written about this movie in 2020 when obviously theaters weren't really open because thanks COVID um, by Melissa Anderson over at Four Columns. And I just love the way that this is opened. Teenagers, like rock stars, thrive on paradox and Mm self-dramatization. Like, yes. Yeah. Yes. Like, that is so perfect. Like, who is more like a rock star and having that mentality of a rock star than a teenage girl with nothing left to lose? I mean, I want to say nobody, but at the same time, I'm like, no, it's it's overly arrogant men who've never failed in their lives. <laughs> <laughs> that's the real Oh, answer. to have the confidence <laughs> of a mediocre white man. <laughs> yeah. So that's really the, the, the correct answer to that. <laughs> And what's really exciting is that this movie is just so aggressive about everything. And you can tell pretty quickly that a main factor in why so many people don't like the stains is because they're girls. Mm-hmm. And like, I, I feel comfortable calling them girls. Like, they're not women. These are children. Like, yep. they are girls. Yep. And when you get those scenes where you see all of their fans in the mall or outside the show and they've all got the outfits on and they've all got the wigs and like mm-hmm. the bright cherry lipstick and they have gone like full in on this message, mm-hmm. like, it's so inspiring and it, it just kind of... And it proves that that theory that we've been having all along, like the reason that movies like Twilight get shelved and the reason that we we make fun of things like White Claw and boy bands and whatever, like society is fucking horrified by teen girls and women in general joining forces, mm-hmm. like horrified, which is why they constantly are trying to tell us that we're all ugly and terrible and we need to hate each other because mm-hmm. they need us to keep infighting. Now we're, you know, bringing up pretty smart. They need us <laughs> to keep infighting because otherwise they know we will overtake them. And that is such a message in this movie. <laughs> or is the message of this movie also that women don't need men? That's a huge part of it, too. The stains are getting popular because one of these two news anchors, like the, the, the female half of this news team, has been supporting them and interviewing them and giving them proper hype. And then she ends up like going up the ladder and gets promoted to like mm-hmm. national news. Mm-hmm. And then you're left with like the shitty mustachioed man mm-hmm. who is like, he has the voice of a wiener. Yeah, he oh. is such a wiener. <laughs> oh, he's the biggest fucking wiener. Like, that man deserves a swirly in his middle age. But she is responsible for giving them, like, the platform that they do past that initial interview. You have all these other girls who are continuing to show up in full regalia for these shows. They do not have men as fans. No. They don't need men to be successful. And all the men in their way are falling over their own feet. And what's also interesting is that when Corinne is giving her big declarations to the world at large, it is so clear that men are like not even a 
factor into anything that she says. Like one of her her big requests is she says that she believes that all citizens should get a guitar on her 16th birthday. Mm -hmm. So like she's not saying anything about men at all, but she is in that sentence saying the only people she recognizes as as citizens are women. Like what what what's that quote? It was like Oh, I feel bad for you. And it's like, oh, I don't think about you at all. Yeah. <laughs> that quote. Yeah, that's yeah. very much that's, what, that's what's That's pretty going much on. what's going on here. Yeah, it's it's wild. And uh it, it's just it's just so cool to to see somebody that young do that. Mm-hmm. And I think we doubt the power and the influence of teen girls all the time. And the reality is that they are some of the strongest and most powerful. I think we're starting to get a little bit of that now where this is going to be a hell of a stretch. Do you know who I think the closest representation to someone like Corinne is today? No, but I feel like you're about to blow my mind. Maybe not in a good way. Jojo Siwa. Oh, hell yeah. It's absolutely Jojo it's Siwa. It's Jojo Siwa. <laughs> and here's why it's Jojo Siwa. Because Jojo Siwa came up through, obviously, like, Dance Moms and, like, that very world. She had shows on Nickelodeon. Like, she was very much part of the machine. And is Jojo still in the machine? I mean, she was on Dancing with the Stars. But she also knows that she is bubblegum pop and big bows and sequins and very girly and her target audience is very, very young girls. And yet she is doing concerts to packed houses across the country where she is making these very loud declarations to parents specifically that are basically like, hey, love your gay kids. And if you don't, you suck at being a parent. But what she's also doing, which I think is really brilliant, is she's waiting to have that until at the very end of her concerts. And she's not doing it because like, oh, I want to make sure I got my money's worth or whatever. Like, that's not the intention. The intention is that she knows that some parents are going to be not chill with this message she's about to drop. And she does not want those kids losing out on their happiness and their joy. So she waits and she like gets it. And it's like, oh, no, you've already been here for two hours, motherfucker. I got you right where I want you. Uh, Gay rights. (laughs) Like, it's the coolest thing in the world. She's such a badass. And she has a car with her face on it. Like, Jojo Siwa can do whatever she wants forever. Jojo Siwa is punk rock. Jojo Siwa is punk rock. Like, she absolutely <laughs> is punk rock. And, like, I know that that might be weird because Corinne is so, like, anti-establishment and is very edgy and Jojo is not edgy. But we're dealing with different cultures now. Mm-hmm. Like, within the culture that we are in, like, nobody has more power and influence over young girls than Jojo Siwa. And the thing is, her audience is even younger. Mm-hmm. They're like babies. Mm-hmm. And yet, she's teaching them all. Like, she's radicalizing them to be good people. Uh-huh. That's amazing. That's punk as fuck. It's so fucking cool. I, I'm i going to be honest with you. I, thought, I was afraid you were going to be like, oh, the, compar- the, the comparable thing is like Taylor Swift. And I would be like, you lost me. No, but it's no, like JoJo, it's not Taylor. Cool. It's JoJo. Absolutely. And because Love JoJo's it. also doing it on her own, like completely on her own. Like, Taylor's audience... There's a lot of people that have been with her for a very long time and mm-hmm. have been with her on that journey. JoJo kind of like drops in the middle of it. Like I feel like kids turn three years old and it's like, wait, I love JoJo. Like it just, it's like blues clues. How could you not? Look at her. The colors. Right. Exactly. The sparkles. She, she's ah. a shiny object and we're all little birds. Exactly. I, ah, it's, it's really, I, I have no words. It's just wild and I love it. But that's, that's the, like I was really sitting here thinking the about JoJo, it. The JoJo brand is Jo- Jojo is her own brand and her yes. brand is big too big to fail at this her point. Ba- her brand is too big to fail and like where like who else in the world do you go to a concert and the entire audience is dressed like the person that they're seeing? No one. Mm. Like maybe like Kiss but those are people that have been doing it since the 70s. Yeah. Like, people don't go to Beyonce concerts dressed like Beyonce. They wish they could. Like, maybe a couple people do. (laughs) But, like, you go to a JoJo Siwa concert, and it is side ponies and bows as far as the eye can see. Uh Like, JoJo Siwa is the modern version of Corinne Burns, and that fucking rules. Oh, God. I just... I'm I'm still rocking, but, like, yeah, no. Absolutely, and it does rule. (laughs) 
Yeah, I, I think that's, I just think that that's so cool. And th- this article from Four Columns continues to talk about kind of like what happened with this movie, because that's, I think, also something important to talk about. Yeah, like, well, why did this movie sit on a shelf for two years? Why did it not get released, like, at all? Why is there so little information <laughs> on, like, what's going on with this movie so here's from what its happened. early days? So it opened in just a few cinemas in the U.S. in October of 1982. It never had a proper theatrical release. Um, It did reach a wider audience a few years later as one of the movies that was featured on USA Network's Night Flight. Okay. We really should do like a retrospective sometime on just like the USA Network and like what they used to be between Night Flight and like Up All Night and how they- Dinner in a movie. Dinner in a movie. I don't know if that was USA. Most TNT, I think. Yeah, whatever. Um, Either way, but like the USA (laughs) Network, like their movie programming- it really introduced an entire generation of people to a lot of films that would have been lost otherwise. Oh, yeah. I say it all the time that I got into movies through TV. Yeah. USA First Up and Night foremost. With like Rhonda Shear and obviously like Joe Bob, like that, all of that is very, very impactful on my upbringing. And mm-hmm. I really wish that we would get a, a return to something like that. Anyway, so the article continues by saying the great small screen showcase of Arcana and Oddities that aired on Friday and Saturdays in the wee hours, which is when I, a teenager, keeping vampire hours, first saw the film. Circulating in bootleg copies over the decades, Staines had a profound influence on bands like Bratmobile and the essential acts in Riot Girl, the genre that most successfully combined feminism and punk. And then she goes on to say that Corinne isn't a stable signifier, yet she is played by someone who is unfailingly preternaturally magnetic. Staines was not Lane's first movie. She made her screen debut in A Little Romance from 1979. But Adler's film came out the year before the actress cemented her A-lister status, attained largely owing to several features she made with Francis Ford Coppola in the 80s. During my most recent viewing of Ladies and Gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains a few weeks ago, I thought often of this phenomenal line from a 2004 essay by George Tolles on David Lynch's Mulholland Drive. The only earthly identity that might be strong enough to undo death is that of an actress on the verge of stardom. Lane in Adler's movie is just another girl lining up to live. Oh, I love that great so line. much. <laughs> oh, it just makes me so happy because obviously, like Diane Lane's incredible, and I don't know. Maybe we'll do Streets of Fire someday. It's not really a teen girl movie, dude, but like dude, Streets of the, Fire rules so much. If the so people much. will let us do Streets of Fire, absolutely. <laughs> I, I talked about Jim Steinman like twenty minutes ago. Let me talk about him more. He's the reason that movie rules because he wrote the intro and the outro yeah. song. <laughs> also, like you know that it is a te- it is a teen movie, and Diane Lane's a big part of it. And then there's you know other women too. But it's a musical. It means. The primary demographic is women. And Willem Dafoe is like the scariest villain I think he's ever been in that movie. Oh, those that pants. so good. I love that movie. <laughs> Maybe next May. Um, we'll see. Maybe for me, <laughs> yeah. May musical month next year. God, I just... Oh, let, let us all know if you would really, really hate for us to cover Streets of Fire, we won't. <laughs> yeah, but I really like the point that's being made, though, is that Corinne, for, for all intents and purposes, is supposed to be, like, the most unlikable person, but you can't help but love her because uh-huh. Diane Lane is just that incredible. Am I and supposed to not like her? Because I love her. And that's the thing, too, is I, I also love her. I agree with everything her. she's saying. Yeah, I love her. And I feel like Lou Adler in his in his brain was probably like, oh, look at this like shrill lead singer. Obviously, I don't want to speak for him. I don't fucking know him. But she's so everything that I wish that I was at that age. Like She was saying out loud the things that I thought in my head. And I think, more importantly, she's saying them with articulation. Mm-hmm. She is concise. There are no wasted words. And it's beautiful. I love it so much. Yeah. She's she's pretty fantastic and like such a great role model, in my opinion. And oh, yeah. I think that people people are afraid to have role models like her. The ones that are not doing it like this goes back to the Jojo Siwa conversation. Jojo's a good role model. People think that she's a bad role model now because well, she so openly talks about queer. her queerness. Yeah. yeah. Jojo was a great role model for the for the good little Christian girls because she didn't sexualize herself. Unlike Corinne Burns, who, you know, we see all quite a bit of her naked body in right. this movie. But then at the same time, she's also screaming at you like, hey, there's nothing wrong with this. If you're making it weird, that's on you, asshole. Exactly. And like, yeah, you're right. You can't argue against that. You're right. We did Assassination Nation last week. The whole point is that, like, nudity isn't inherently sexual. Correct. Well, Corinne, I guess you've caught the winking eye of the media. There was this great crescendo, and then boom. (laughs) 
In effect, uh, one might say you're a has-been. If we had made any money, which we didn't, we well, would have Well, whatever it was, you were selling lies, truth, I don't know, but your fans certainly seemed to resent it. <laughs> well, let's get back to our point. Don't put out. Now, you've just proved it yourself. It never really meant anything to you. But it may, young girls, Watch leave it, young their man. You fart. their homes, their jobs, put them out on the streets in risque outfits at the mercy of rapists. Old farts like you. Yes, I've been expecting that, too. Come on, what else? Let's hear it. What else? I think every citizen should be given an electric guitar on our 16th yes, birthday. Yes, well, I would love to chat more, but unfortunately, our time is up. So something really interesting that happens in this movie that I think is so specifically important to see how teenagers react to this mm -hmm. is as the stains are becoming this kind of phenomenon, they start interviewing their family. And in particular, they interview Laura Dern's mom. Mm -hmm. And she also like talks about the kids and is very positive about it all mm -hmm. and talks specifically about like Corinne and Tracy's mom who has passed away, who is her sister. Mm -hmm. And the girls all watch this interview happen. Like they don't know that she's being interviewed. They just see it on the TV. And they, they're just passing through the mall after their yeah. mall concert and happen to catch it in like the front of an electronic store or something. Yeah. And it's such a moment that I think reminds you that they are so young mm -hmm. because they are so defiant for most of this movie that you kind of forget that these are still children. Mm -hmm. And this is a moment where I think they are at their most teenage because you see just genuine heartbreak of having to cope with the fact that their family who has never really loved them, never really cared about them, never supported them. Oh, no. It's, it's kind of shitty it's like in the early parts of yeah them. it's when, really hard when they're singing carol king off key and harmonizing poorly towards the beginning of the movie mm -hmm. and just being like you're not gonna amount to nothing you ain't shit kind of like yeah. that energy and and to see them you know all you know to see to see the aunt all gussied up on tv and holding the framed photo of her sister like they did it oh my gosh they did it and they just kind of have to sit there and take it like they can't immediately combat that so now they know that the entire world thinks that like oh this is the the home we came from when that's not true mm -hmm. and it is when i think we see corinne actually have like just an inkling of vulnerability mm -hmm. it's the one and only time that it, i think it's visible to us at least not until like the very very end of the movie when yeah. she thinks she's lost everything yeah um i i'm curious like you and i obviously have very different family lives um but I definitely had moments that were kind of like this, where um, after I graduated high school, I drove around the country for a bit, living out of my car. Mm -hmm. And my dad called me at one point saying, like, hey, I want to see you before you left. And I'm like, dude, I left like five days ago. Mm -hmm. And I told you. And he's like, oh, I, I didn't realize. I thought that was next week or something. And I'm like, cool. Thanks, dad. But he was like, I'm just, I'm just real proud of you. I'm like, for what? And he's like, you got out. I'm so proud of you for getting out, which I don't think was like, hey, you got out of Ohio that he was saying that about. I think it was mm -hmm. more like I got out of my mom's house because well, they, yeah, your brother never did because they hate each other. Yeah. So it's just like, yeah, that, that bitch of a woman is probably what he was thinking because my yeah. dad's not necessarily a good dude. But that's one of the weirdly enough, that's one of the only times I can ever remember my parents saying that they were proud of me. Mm -hmm. Like I can count on one hand comfortably that either of my parents said that. Which is fucking weird to think about. That like about. really hurts my heart. And like I know that that is true to your experience. I'm not going to be like, oh, about it. But it's just, it's the polar opposite of my experience because my parents have always been like my biggest cheerleaders from day one, mm -hmm. even with stuff that they didn't fully understand. Yeah, but I, I don't even know how I would handle that. Like if I was given like that amount of love at this point, I would be mm -hmm. like, uh, it's weird. Get it away from me. Well, that was a thing that we even talked about before we went and visited my parents after we got married. Like that was a conversation we had because we drove because it was the pandemic and we didn't trust airports. Mm -hmm. So we drove from Ohio to Florida and going to look at somebody else's walls. At least gonna, they have a pool. <laughs> exactly. And one of the things that we talked about was 
what's it going to feel like to be in a house where my parents are going to make us sit down? Like, nope, you're not doing the dishes. You're not doing any helping around. Nope, nope, you're guests. We're taking care of you. And also because my dad is like permanently like car salesman, that's just his personality, Mm -hmm. to be like, this is my daughter and this is her wife and this is how great they are and you need to love them. Look how great they are. I think it was just really chill. Yeah, well, he was chill this time. Like, it was was not a big anything. Like, they didn't make a big what to do about whatever. And I think that that was... I think that that's was what you needed. But like in this movie, it almost feels like she like she is holding up Corinne's mom, like a picture of her going, look, you finally made it to the big time. You're on TV. Uh-huh. And I'm having this feeling with like that parallel between her mom and Corinne, mm-hmm. where this aunt is going like, I didn't realize what my what I had with like my daughter or my nieces until it was too late. Mm-hmm. Like they're gone. Yeah. They're not like gone, gone, but like I'm not communicating with them. Yeah. Like they may never come back. I may never see them again. Who knows? Mm-hmm. And it's so, it's all, it's such an understated moment that they don't really hang on very, for very long. Mm-hmm. But like, I, I don't know. It's just, it's a lot. Like we even had people who um, like when you had to go back to Cleveland uh, like probably like four or five months ago now, mm-hmm. so many people there were telling you like, oh my God, it's so good to see you. Don't ever come back here. That happened on more occasions than I was anticipating. I thought maybe like a couple people, but it was almost universal. Like even our friends who have homes and like really deeply rooted lives mm-hmm. in Cleveland were like, I'm so happy you got the fuck out of here. Mm-hmm. And that was... The mentality and like that's such a weird thing to kind of grapple with. Like I don't know how Corinne or any of them would feel if they went back and saw their family and they were like, "We're so proud of you." I think they would all short circuit. I almost feel like they're not allowed to fail in their own brains. Mm-hmm. Where you have that moment where at the very very end of the movie where she is kind of almost lost her power over like th- that fucking wiener. Of a, of a news reporter mm-hmm. where he's like not giving her any time and is just totally talking about her failures and nothing else and just being a piece of shit. And you see that she's she's kind of beaten a little bit until she sees that there are still Stains fans. Like it's a small amount, but there's still something out there. So it's not like all gone, but it felt like she had lost everything. You have that thought of like, oh, I have to go back home with my tail between my legs after doing all this. I've got to go back to where I was trapped and I might not get out again. It's yeah, that's like heavy. That's so heavy. And that is definitely an anxiety that I have of us like living out in L.A. I'm always constantly terrified. Like, what if we have to go back? Too bad. I'm really good with my finances. (laughs) And that means that I have us a very, very small but okay cushion. (laughs) But like that, that is a thing that I fear all the time, because at this point, I'm like, I don't know where I would like where would we go? Mm-hmm. Like, Cleveland doesn't feel like home anymore. Well, yeah. My hometown definitely is not all, like home anymore. All of my favorite places in Cleveland, barring a couple exceptions, closed during the pandemic. Like, like my RIP to the side quest, that closed. Yeah. Like, yeah, my, my home bar that, like, had, had, I not be, had I not met BJ, there's a good chance I would have died at that bar one day. Yeah. Like, for real. And so... I don't know where where would I go? Failure is not an option. Mm-hmm. Like that's pretty much where where we're at. Yeah, and that's... that that's the you throw all your eggs in one basket. Our basket was moving the fuck out of Ohio, and the stains are are betting on themselves. You know. Yeah. So obviously, ladies and gentlemen, the fabulous stains is kind of a quick and dirty uh, little movie. What and, a beautiful, blissful eighty-seven minutes! Oh, it's so good. It just and like n- not a wasted second. No, it's just fantastic. Um, so you know, there's not a whole lot to to really rip apart, other than just like, fuck yeah, girls rule. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, that's kind of the general consensus of it. Yeah. Um, so Harmony, I am I'm going to ask you. Ladies and gentlemen, the Fabulous Danes is asking you to the prom. Is it a yes, a no, a maybe, or are you buying them a ticket so they can go on alone? These girls would never go to the prom. Oh, God, no. (laughs) But I would absolutely be a meek little 15-year-old and go, will you please go with me? I just think you're so cool. (laughs) So yes, no, absolutely. Fucking live this movie. Um, I remember once, uh, I, I, I don't know how long this episode is. I think it's going to be one of our shorter ones. Yeah, probably. But 
I remember a, a quote with Johnny Ramone one time where he was asked, like, why do you write such short songs? And he said, oh, no, they're actually quite, quite long songs. We just play them really fast. <laughs> and I think that that's just the fervor with which we have been excitedly yelling things at each other in this hopefully not too echoey room. Yes. <laughs> you know, that's a really good point. I like that quote. That's a good one. Yeah. So, um, yeah, God, I just think. Diane Lane is incredible in this movie. I, I I wish we had a little bit more Laura Dern. I wish so too, but she is so incredible in this because she's also like way taller than all of them. Uh-huh. Um, so she, it's just, she's like, great. Like same. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that kind of takes things up on, ladies and gentlemen, the fabulous Danes. As always, we want to thank everyone for listening. You can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at This Ends at Prom. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at BJ Colangelo. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Velocitraptor, Velosa underscore trap underscore tour. And as always, humongous thank you to the Sonderbombs for allowing us to use title as our theme song. Huge congratulations to lead singer Willow, who also was our guest on our high school musical episode, because Willow just did a performance with Laura Jane Grace, and we're just so proud of you. I'm just delighted to see all of the members of the Sonderbombs releasing like solo albums and doing solo shows, and it just makes me happy to be like, look at y'all just doing things. Just doing things. That I can't go to, but would go to. <laughs> Pandemic may have gotten you down, but you're making you're making lemonade with all that, and it, it just makes me happy. It's the fucking best. So Harmony, this week more than ever, I'm really excited. What indie band do you want people to check out? Oh God, so this is a movie with like massive girl power and punk energy so what band do i plug for this one i don't know i had a million options but the one i'm going with is a band called skating Polly. okay um they i believe are gonna have an album coming out a little bit later this year but they are such a good mix of everything that was awesome about like women-led music in the 90s um specifically i want to shout out a, a few songs by them that i really love like their song they're cheap i'm free which has like very good early Fabulous Stains vibes, as well as stuff like Hollywood Factory, which is a little more like Liz Fair, but is like later Stains vibes. Like they do a very wide range of sounds that I appreciate a lot. And their most recent song, I believe, is called Don't Leave Me Gravity. And it is a like piano ballad. Mm-hmm. And I think they're just like three siblings and they rule and I, I look forward to see what they're going to do later. I've only discovered them fairly recently. Well, awesome. That's That sounds like a perfect match for this week. And yeah. thank you for your suggestion. You're welcome. <laughs> All right, friends. We will see you next time. And don't forget, save that last dance for us. Bye. Bye. This episode was brought to you by Pod People Productions. To find more episodes of this show and others, please visit podpeople.me.